for April 1st, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 561, a Captain Marvel solution to a Roots problem. Hello and welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. I am Peter Fenzel because Matt Rather is gone, gone, gone. He has vanished into a hole, into the vast network of tunnels beneath the United States, which we were all informed of in the pre-credits. Uh, you were supposed right. to be watching him. <laughs> I know I was. You take you take your eyes off a grown man for 15 minutes and he goes wandering off in some hall of mirrors and doesn't return in time for the podcast. So that is the voice of one of our esteemed panelists, which uh, we'll all be talking about the uh, hit new Jordan Peele movie, Us, uh, a horror movie with a social message, which is the new trademark of uh, America's new Rod Serling, uh, fair to say. But first, before we get into that, let me uh, say hello to our wonderful panel, starting, of course, with a returned guest who has been here before, and we are so glad to have her here again, uh, Shian Anamashan. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you? Right. You you were with us for Black Panther. You were with us, with us for Avengers. So you've been with us for all the highlights. And I'm really thrilled that we get a chance for you to dig into something that's maybe a little bit less bombastic and a little bit more cerebral. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. I'm super excited. Excellent. Excellent. Of course, we have Mark Lee, stalwart. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. But I will take issue with you saying that this movie doesn't have bombast. It's got, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't not have bombast, okay? But That's we'll true. get to that later. And the other movies weren't uncerebral. So it's all pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> movie is a movie. We're all, we all love movies. That's the takeaway. We're saying and Us course, is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's what we're saying. Oh, confirmed. <laughs> Excellent. Confirmed. Merlin is Thanos. Confirmed. All right. And, uh, and Jordan Stokes is with us also today. Hi, Jordan. How are you? I'm very good. Hey, Pete. Hey, hey, hey. Jordan, you know, a long time original OTIer who is, of course, uh, famous for his risotto and for how his childcare responsibilities mean that we don't get to see him around here as much as we like. But we're super, super psyched that he's able to join us today. So, Us. Uh, spoilers for Us. If you have not seen the Jordan Peele movie Us, go see it. This is a movie where spoilers do matter. It is a bit scary, but not incredibly scary. So I would say if you're averse to horror movies, don't feel like you have to be scared of this like you would of The Ring. Uh, but go check it out because it's really good and really interesting. Uh, and we're about to give you a full plot summary of it. Uh, so either if you haven't seen it and you just want to hear us talk about it, stay tuned. Otherwise, pause the podcast, run to the theater, see it, go back to the parking lot, unpause it uh, in your car in the parking lot and listen to our takes on it. So to get us started, Jordan, how about you start off by getting us all up to speed and kind of on the same page with what actually happens in the Jordan Peele film Us? Okay, so... I'm going to try to give you the plot in the order that it makes sense, which is not the order that you actually see the events happening in the theater. Like it sort of it unspools in a way that is very mysterious. A lot of the relevant information is revealed right at the end. But here is sort of the order that things happen, apparently, in the world of us. So at some point, at least two generations ago, I think we're told, uh, there is a secret government experiment involving cloning. And they figure out a way to clone people 
But they realize that when they've cloned the bodies, they end up with only one soul sort of stretched over the two bodies. And there's going to be one person who lives on the surface who just is going about their day being a normal person. And then they have a clone body somewhere down in a tunnel that is kind of alive, kind of aware, uh, but basically just mimics most of the surface actions and doesn't really have free will or volition or consciousness in quite the normal sense. And that's all in like the deep, deep background. And they, they eat rabbit and they just carry on their shadow life down in the caves. Uh, then sometime in the eighties, a young girl named Adelaide uh, wanders away from her family at a carnival and enters a house of mirrors where, uh, in a really kind of freaky scene, she ends up backing up into what looks like it's a mirror, but then she turns around and the figure in the mirror doesn't turn around because, uh-oh, it's her doppelganger from down in the tunnels. And uh, Adelaide and Red, who is her doppelganger, were born slightly different somehow. Red has more volition, more control than Adelaide does. And then, and this is the, the biggest spoiler, you're not supposed to find this out till the very end. Uh, what happens is that Red knocks Adelaide out and drags Adelaide down into the tunnels and leaves her there to live the tunnel life. And Red comes up to the surface to lead Adelaide's life. And then we jump forward to the present day. Adelaide is married. She has this kind of like very stereotypical, normal, happy family. She has a husband who is uh, like a, a dad to end all dads. And they have two adorable kids and they have a lake house. And the lake house is right by the beach where the, the house of mirrors was, this portal to the nether realm. And they travel to the lake house and Red, who is now now living as Adelaide, starts to get kind of freaked out. She sort of sees that something's coming. And then suddenly uh, all of the doppelgangers of her family show up at her door. And they're all wearing these red jumpsuits. And what has happened is that uh, Adelaide, actual Adelaide, who has been down in the tunnels all this time, has organized the doppelgangers to ascend to the surface and kill all of the surface people and take their place so that they can stop having people take over their lives and make them feel things they don't want to feel and do things they don't want to do. And then the rest of it is basically stab, stab, chase, chase, die, uh, right on through to the end. Uh, eventually, Adelaide... Uh, the, well, let, let's call her Red, the one who actually grew up in the tunnels and seems like the villain all through this. She snatches the surface Adelaide's son and brings him down into the tunnels. They go down there. There is a choreographed ballet stab off and the, the person who has lived in the tunnels, Red, dies and the the person who actually all along was a tunnel person, who we think of as Adelaide, brings her son back to the surface and the family like runs off to hide together. Uh, is that basically it? I think that covers it. Any additions, corrections, deletions to Jordan's summary about the story? Yeah, I would um, uh, try to unpack a little bit in terms of the, the fundamental premise of this, right? The cloning experiment and the fact that we got two bodies but only one soul. It's ostensibly supposed to be about government mind control. Right, and this is connected with what we think is a throwaway line at the beginning, where the daughter says something about, "Oh, the government puts fluoride in the water to control people's minds," and it's like, "Ah, it's just it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense in context." But then later on, you're like, "Oh, okay, something's going on here." Right, but the direction of control isn't entirely clear 
I don't think, and I think it's left intentionally ambiguous to open up all sorts of different possibilities, including the the weirdness going on where the boy um, in in the beginning of the third act, right when they're in daylight, uh, backs up uh, so that the doppelganger enters into the fire. Um, right. So that's something that I'm still not clear about, but I feel like it's pretty important to uh, uh, interpreting the movie. Yeah. It seemed to me like the method of control is similar to Shikamaru's shadow technique in the Naruto verse, but that perhaps is not going to help anybody else in this podcast other than me. <laughs> where like, <laughs> where you use a shadow to connect to somebody else's shadow and then they have to mimic your movements. It was interesting because it seems like in the story for the most part, the 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 term that's used for the people in the tunnels is the tethered, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And we can get back to what that means later, but the tethered, right? Have seem to have the ability to control how the people above ground move around by like moving their bodies, right? And then and, and turning the people above ground into puppets. And that seems to be why the experiment was designed. And yet at the same time, the people underground are are being forced unknowingly by the people above ground to like mimic them. So yeah. it's not really clear who is the puppeteer and who is the puppeted, but the original intent of the experiment is for the tethered to be able to puppeteer the people on the surface, I think. Um, if I can jump in quickly, yeah, sure. uh, the only thing I'd add to the summary that Jordan gave is that I believe the phrase was they were forced to eat rabbit raw, which is an interesting way to put words together that I wasn't expecting from the film. Um, I found really interesting. And then outside of that, I think the experiment failed, right? So the point was for the tethered, the folks living underground, to be able to be used to control those above. And it didn't work until the government abandoned it. Um, And for whatever reason, the tethered are then forced to oddly mimic what the people above ground are doing. Right. Any, yeah. Is there anything else? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and forced not by the government. The government has walked away from the whole thing, but the tethered, rather than just dying out, which I suppose was maybe what they were supposed to do, have continued to eat their rabbits and just do what the people on the surface are doing. So I think that the, the control is meant to go from surface to basement. The government wanted to figure out a way to get it to go the other way. And when that didn't work out, they're like, ah, well, let's, you know, let's move our funding into MK Ultra or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I, I want to see, is there anything else you have to say about that rabbit raw thing? Because that definitely struck me too. And I, I didn't know whether it was a John Updike reference, which I was very skeptical of, <laughs> but I don't think that was the right interpretation. But what, how does that strike you? What is anything else about that whole, that phraseology? Is it just the alliteration or is there something about it? that sticks with you. I mean, one thing, uh, uh, go ahead, please. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I just found it very raw or very raw. Well, there you go. I found it very, um, very odd that they didn't say we had to eat raw rabbit is what I would have expected. Um, But I think for me, that goes into a whole host of things, including how Red even knows the story and who told it to her if no one in the underground speaks any kind of language other than a guttural sound. Yeah, that's really interesting. Go go ahead, Jordan. Well, I was going to say one thing that it does is it links us to get out, not like very explicitly, but the first thing that you hear in get out is that like run rabbit, run rabbit, run song. So there's the, the rabbit run rabbit raw, right? I feel like, um, I loved this movie. I have to say, like, I'm slightly, slightly scared that if no one stops him, it's 
possible that Jordan Peele is going to like disappear up his own ass as a director <laughs> because this is so much more of an art project than Get Out was. Uh, and it seems to me that he's kind of doing the thing that auteurs will do where you want to have like a thematic obsession that links your movies and it, it shows you, oh, this is a Jordan Peele movie. Watch for the rabbit, right? Um, and like, you know, <laughs> don't, don't take that as me saying that I didn't like this. I think it's great, but it's... I do think that he is self-consciously branding himself as an artist there. And I think that maybe part of the, I think that red made up the story. Cause I think that red is an artist too. Like that's the, the way that she's able to mobilize the underground people is through a, as uh, as the dad says at one point, Oh, it looks like some kind of weird performance art project, right? That's, that's her goal. It's mm -hmm. not like they're trying to take over the surface world so they can reign in power. They're taking over the surface world to make an artistic statement. So to go back to the rabbits, I know that there's um, conversations about Jordan Peele thinking that they're terrifying because they have creepy eyes, um, something of that nature, the eyes of a sociopath. Um, so maybe, you know, all of his horror movies are going to have some rabbit reference that just gets sprinkled in because he feels like terrifying us with rabbits. Um, they are pretty scary. <laughs> At least that's I mean, photographed here. <laughs> The way they zoomed in or then zoomed out, it was a little, like, sinister, for sure. Also, Us is kind of the same movie as The Favorite. Like, <laughs> kind of. The Favorite? <laughs> because, like, they both feature rabbits prominently, and they're both about one person who has absolutely nothing and sees somebody else's really nice life and decides to take it, you know? It's a it's a kind of a weird coincidence for it to be, but like they do basically have the same plot ish, right? And the favorite is the movie about it's Queen Victoria, right? And it's like two of her servants, one is trying to usurp the other, something along Queen those lines. Anne. Queen Anne, okay, yeah, like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'm not familiar. And, I know it, it and was her doppelganger. Ooh, no, there's no doppelgangers. <laughs> in, in the and, uh, lots yeah. of jumpsuits. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to figure out the rabbits the whole time. I'm thinking, oh, is this a of mice and men reference where the rabbits are supposed to represent how people are kind of helpless and are victimized by power and our, our ability to sort of care for them is compromised and instead we crush them and destroy them? Or is this like an Alice in Wonderland ra reference mm. where the white rabbit like leads the little girl into the sort of transformed realm of altered consciousness where she discovers, you know, things can be bigger or smaller or different than what she thought, right? Or is this a situation where the the white rabbit represents kind of disappearance that there that you know this is a magic trick where some aspect of everybody has been disappeared and vanished like a white rabbit in a magic show uh, but i, I kind of was so bringing through all this <laughs> yeah i mean i when i first saw it I, I wondered okay are these rabbits in cages the souls of people and when the cages get open, then their souls are released or they're somehow free. Like, is there a connection there, like one-to-one? -one? But then, you know, the people underground eat the rabbit, so it can't really work out that way, now can it? Yeah. I feel like, though, one of the things that is nice about this movie is that there's lots of symbols that work for a minute, but don't you don't need to try to think of them as making logical sense all the way through the movie. So, like, one one example of this is that the that initial slow zoom out of the rabbit in the cage is sort of a visual rhyme with a shot that we saw just earlier framed 
almost the same zooming in on a television with rabbit ear antennas. This is something that I know uh, I didn't notice this myself. I was, I was reading the um, whoever reviewed the movie for uh, the Onion AV Club, I think it was that uh, that pointed this out. So you can think of the rabbits in the cage as being like television, and then being forced to eat rabbit raw is maybe something about the way that the shows that we watch on TV tell us what to think, and uh, and you sort of you are what you eat. You consume that diet unfiltered raw, right? And you end up hmm. being like the rabbit in the cage all over again. But that doesn't make sense when like the rabbits are free later or the, the very gross notion of actually eating raw rabbits or like the bloody rabbit's foot that you see around the uh, the neck of one of the one of the tethered people at one point. So it's like it could be all of these things. It only needs to make sense for the moment that you think about it. The symbol, I think. I wish that I watched, rewatched Watership Down before this to see if there was some similarity in the plot lines, but uh, perhaps there isn't. I don't know. I don't remember. I know that there's warfare among the rabbits, uh, but but this, this I guess raises the whole the larger question of you, symbol, right? Like this is a movie that has a ton of symbol. Symbol being distinct from metaphor, right? In the sense of a symbol can have multiple things that it's referring to at once, whereas with a metaphor you're talking about like a one to one correspondence. So. I want to ask you all if we can start unpacking some of the dimensions of the symbols of these doppelgangers, because really, more than anything else, it seems to me the selling point of this movie is the symbolism bend, the ideas baked into the doppelgangers and the confrontations between the doppelgangers and the quote unquote real people, right? The people who are above ground. Of course, they're all fictional characters, so that adds another dimension to it also. But but what do you guys what was your kind of either headcanon or analysis of the relation between the doppelgangers and us, the tethered, right? The tethered, the tethered, and I guess the tetherers, <laughs> uh, as it were. I mean, the biggest thing for me was that, um, and this is where I think it gets into the the bigger question of what were they trying to say with this tethered group of people, is that they are essentially the people that live above ground. They're clones of them for whatever reason, due to perhaps just their circumstances they have a a a different view of life and they go through life in a different way so that's seen mostly most clearly when you have red doing her switcheroo with adelaide and then living above ground as adelaide excelling as a dancer having some sort of life that's positive you know getting married having kids and all of these positive things that get to happen to her and they're not tainted or made more negative by virtue of the fact that she was born in in this underground facility um so to me it just felt like you know not so much duality of man but just what happens when a group of people are given opportunity and another group of people are denied that right so sort of like a material dialectic of classes that are kind of unaware that they're opposite each other or at least the people who are the kind of bourgeois are not aware of the degree to which they are intrinsically oppressing the proletariat by virtue of their relative privilege. Right. And then I guess, depending on whether or not you have sympathy for the tethered, it's a question of, does it matter that the people who were doing the oppressing were not aware of it? Right. They, they don't get a pass. And according to the film, it doesn't matter. They don't get a pass because they weren't aware. They just get punished. Right. It's interesting because it seems like some of the characters in the movie who are, you know, bougie, for lack of a better term. We have we have skipped entirely the uh, 
the Elizabeth Moss subplot of the white family who are just jerks, who are like decadent, vain, comfy seeking jerks and whose uh, whose tethered doppelgangers are vicious and unhesitant killers. Uh, but uh, we, we, we will no doubt visit it and are visiting it now. Um, but yeah, this this idea that like, uh, oh, gosh, like she seems more Elizabeth Moss's character seems more culpable for the moral degradation that is represented in her tethered than, say, like. Uh, you know, the dad is right. Um, what's his, I, I want to call him Mbaku, Mbaku but, but he has a real name. <laughs> so, uh, Winston Duke's character, um, the, the human version, I guess, or I guess it's incorrect to say human. The above ground version is Gabe. And then the underground version is Abraham. Gotcha. So Gabe seems less culpable. Well, I guess Gabe is culpable for Abraham and totally unaware of it. Right. But yeah, but I just it seems that seems like a more the movie makes it feel like a more problematic, but kind of necessary realization than Elizabeth Moss's kind of morally bankrupt character, <laughs> who is sort of a hollow shell of a human being filled up with rosé and, and self-loathing uh, and, and loathing of her husband. Right. Is. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, let me address this like a little more head on way. Right. It's to say that, like, you know, you have this white well to do family and this black well to do family and the, the white well to do family is like even more well to do. Uh, higher higher up socioeconomically and it's like there's sort of a uh, a bait and switch going on here right where you think like we're setting up some sort of racial allegory thing going on um but that's not i don't think that's what this movie is about so just to really drive home the point that we were talking about here right this movie is less about like you know uh, the the white suppressing the blacks as it is about like the collective privileged class you belong to it whether you are you know, a white asshole full of uh, all these problems or this like, you know, reasonable uh, upper middle class black family. Um, you're still part of like the broader capitalist oppressive system. Uh, is that a fair summary to say of what of the issues we just brought up here? I mean, I that's think my take. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 I guess show of hands. Are you all of you generally saw this as kind of a class based movie? For the most part, that was investigating kind of differences of class and wasn't as engaged in race as Get Out was, for example. Yes. For the most okay. part. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't call this a racial movie at all, really. I think that you can definitely – there are some racial things going on in it probably, but like you could easily imagine a movie where all of the tethered are black people and all of the people, all of the characters that we're following on the surface are white people, right? That wouldn't be hard to make, but it wouldn't be this movie. Right, this movie right. very consciously sort of tries to say that, uh, that, well, this is us, right? Like, do you own an iPhone? Someone made that iPhone under circumstances you might not like to think about, right? right. Uh, what, what moral debt do you owe them? How bad would it really be for them to show up at your house and stab you? They right. eat raw rabbit, oh, sorry, rabbit raw at a Foxconn factories in yeah, China. Foxconn, man, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, I'll put out so, so the thoughts that I was having, but also I'll admit that I was looking to read in a racial coding into this movie from the minute I walked into it because of context. So, of course, I don't you could argue that that is invalid as a way to approach it. And I should wait and see what the movie tells me before I make these assumptions uh, or that, you know, the author is dead and, and different interpretations are interesting. But uh, I'm definitely interested in all of you that you all reached a consensus that I didn't identify with at all. Well, not at all, like that I saw the movie as different. Um, so I guess I'll float my ideas out there and then you can destroy them or whatever if you want. Um, but I felt like that the tethered, uh, there were a couple things that struck me. One was that they were that they were called the tethered and they very conspicuously were never referred to as chained. 
And yet the protagonist, uh, um, Adelaide, wears literal shackles for most of the movie. And uh, and this to me sort of spoke to uh, a kind of they doth protest too much with regards to this being on some level about the psychological cost of slavery over American history. Um, and also the jumpsuits, which felt very kind of chain gangy. Right. They felt very like Southern forced labor. Uh, the, these kind of heavy. Well, they felt very 13th Amendment. They very, very much like the prison industrial complex is an extension of slavery that was kind of abetted uh, as as America kind of washed its hands of its great sin without really truly alleviating it. Um, and, and it seemed to me not necessarily that this was about kind of like those who were oppressed by slavery versus those who benefited from slavery and them being at odds with each other. And more the idea that there's this like internalized wound in the American psyche around slavery that feeds into people's psyches in different ways, depending on who they are, that on some level you can kind of tr you can rise above in your life. Uh, the things that have kind of happened in our history, whether you're white or black, the, the sins in our history and the oppressions and the degradations that have happened in our history. And you can you can feel like you've risen above it. But somewhere deep in your psyche, there remains this kind of horrible tethered thing, this like internalized sense of a person or a soul that's been like wrong or wounded. Um, and I guess the things that stuck out to me about that most were the ways in which the the tethered versions of the black characters were kind of commodified versions of kind of um, the kind of exploited black bodies, the the sort of the, the the shrimp boat. Right. The sort of the 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 dad's boat is called the craw daddy. Right. And his doppelganger has this big, thick beard and is this big, burly man who's often filmed like with his haunches in full view and is very kind of like his body is very much on display, though that also could just be Jordan Peele just putting the body on display because that's what he's doing. It's this is a this is a movie and people's bodies are on display. The girl, right. The girl doesn't really want to be a runner. She wants to drive a car. She wants to be an adult. But there's some part of her intrinsic talent that is linked to her athletic ability, which is which is sort of implied to be linked to her blackness. And of course, the tethered version of her only runs. It's the only thing she does. Right. She is the way that that sort of internalized sense of degradation would manifest. Like, I am only the thing that my body can do. Uh, and, and the black boy has this kind of like fantastical relationship with violence, but his tethered version is a threat, is like a social threat, a crazy, a crazy little beast who like needs to be locked in the closet by society. Uh, and, and then and then and then it all gets complicated by like the dance, right? Which is kind of um well, I mean, also there's the scissors, right? Where the mom is like a seamstress. Uh, you know, she carries she has this sort of leather glove to prevent hurting her hand and she carries the scissors, which to me speaks of sort of household labor uh, and the sort of and this all feeds into like loaded hairstyles and stuff. Um, and then the white characters, of course, like act all sort of we tra we crave comfort, we crave luxury, we just want to have a happy life. But their tethered personas are efficient and ruthless killers who like un uh, unhesitantly go after uh, and victimize people. Um, and also there was other, there's other aspects to it too, but I don't want to monologue for too long about it. But for me, that sort of felt like the hands across America is, is kind of a metaphor for chained people across America. And then the sort of the eighties idea of we're all going to be in this together. And America is this kind of spirit of cooperation is kind of a dark, a sort of dark mirror or light mirror, right. Of the American legacy of there, in fact, being people chained across America, uh, and and these people being tethered to this kind of institution that's indelibly marked on all of our souls. Um, and that was kind of how I felt it. And maybe I'm like overdoing it. 
but I was wondering if, if any aspect of that resonates with any of you guys or it just seems absurd or, or, or anything along those lines. I mean, for me, I think it's so interesting that we watched the same movie and got such vastly different reads on it because I didn't get a lot of that. And like some of it, okay, I can kind of see where you're coming from. But for the most part, for me, the even when they first showed the Hands Across America ad, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, you're going to pay money to hold hands. Like, what does that actually do for hunger? Like, you're not doing anything. It feels right. like an empty gesture that you're putting together. And like uh, Gabe... The character Gabe said it looked like a performance art piece. And once you know the whole story about how it's a little girl that saw this at some point, maybe she's eight years old. I'm not sure exactly how old she was supposed to be when she got kidnapped or swapped. Um, that why she would think that was a useful thing. And she keeps and holds with her as she grows older. It just feels like a a weird empty gesture that does actually nothing and yes they have all these people fully united in what seems like a mindless way to show quote-unquote something but at the end you know end scene you have the world is on fire in many ways and there's helicopters circling and these people are just silently in their in their line not really sure what they have what plans they have to go forward um as far as the the meaning or what it was showing for me again it seemed to be more of the privileged not privileged my ability to be privileged inherently um removes privilege from someone else or exploits the lack of privilege that someone else has and i'm blind to that in one way or the other and that underprivileged person is then able or is coming to rise up against me in, in that reason that's how i saw all of those people um I did notice that the the Elizabeth Moss's family, like their doppelgangers, were much better killers than um, the main characters. Um, I didn't I didn't think too deeply about that, which is probably a problem as I'm here on the Overthinking It podcast. But <laughs> well, um, think about what inspires you. The Overthinking It podcast is about loving what you love, right? And like, <laughs> what got your attention? What got your brain going? Not what got my brain so, going. My brain's crazy. Hey, we're, we're talking about the Elizabeth Moss, Moss uh, the White family. So let's get into this call the police, F the police dichotomy. That might that be useful in decoding some of the, the, the racial stuff or not. Yeah, off the bat, yes. Amazing, just golden uh, a moment of cinema right there and hysterical as a joke but beyond that though right is there any there there to that uh, i mean i guess you're asking a rhetorical question where you believe the answer is yes <laughs> so so the idea is what like well it's interesting that that oh anyway is, does anybody else want to weigh in with this before i go off on another tangent about race in america because <laughs> i'm hardly uh it's hardly the only thing we need to talk about you have the main family going through this home invasion and you kind of feel like these are the people that have the issue something's happening to them it's just them alone in the world with this issue and once we get over to the other family we see that oh elizabeth moss's family also has this happening it's not just in in adelaide's house it's wider than that so for me other than being hilarious when the um the call to you know call the police came up and turned into that song it's also like, well, they probably have their doppelgangers too. So it's there's no real purpose or like use in calling them. There's not a lot of help you're going to get from them because they're going to be occupied. Right. That's how I saw it. Yeah. And it's it's like everybody seems to have to confront themselves. And this because throughout how, how, hanging above all this is that line 
by red, right? That we're Americans, I think. Yeah. And, and that. Yeah. So whatever it is that this movie has to say about the police, it also has it to say about the American relationship with police. And this idea that that can we really push aside what for, for either whichever narrative you're saying, like by calling the police, you're kind of punting on your own responsibility for dealing with the differences in power that are in your life with the people that are around you one might say, or power, wealth, prosperity, if as long as you have police exist to kind of protect your property. And so if you have to confront the truth, you might try to call the police to kind of intercede for you on behalf of your psyche so that you don't have to confront the cost of your of your prosperity to others. Um, or alternatively, you know, the police kind of are uh, kind of are, are, are the kind of guns on the wall that that kind of uh, I don't know, I guess they make us feel safe in the sense that they kind of confer a sense of justice to the inherent brutality of, of, of kind of a natural monopoly, not even natural, but a monopoly of force. So um, for me, it felt like perhaps, you know, you have this this concept where you have problems and you're pushing them off to another party. So you feel that you have um, whatever privilege that you have or whatever things you're trying to protect. And instead of dealing with it head on when there's one issue or the other, you're trying to see like, who can I pass it off to? And they're passing it off to police in this right. in this arena. I think that's what you're saying. That's kind of how I see it too. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so two other aspects of the, the doppelgangers and the kind of brutality of the doppelgangers that struck me um, was that there's the moment early on in, in the beach scene, I love the beach scene where where the uh, the two families get together and they have that kind of snippy back and forth about their kind of individual problems. Um, Elizabeth Moss mentions in that scene that she uh, or at least she sort of fishes to Lupita Nyong'o to, to Adelaide that, oh, look, I've had some plastic surgery done on my face. Right. And, and in that same conversation, Elizabeth Moss calls Adelaide a, a whore. Right. And so there's this cruelty to this conversation. I and mean, she's sort of saying like, look how beautiful I am. And, and you're a whore. Uh, but but it's papered over with kind of bougie, privileged pleasantries. And oh, we're just having conversation. And then there's a weird moment later on where Elizabeth Moss's tethered character uh, has the opportunity to murder Adelaide and chooses not to. And I know there's some other ideas of what's going on here, and I'll open that up to just a second. But I thought it was interesting that one of the things that she does is she regards uh, Adelaide's face, right? And, and of course, Lupita Nyong'o, famous for being very beautiful, has a very kind of beautiful face, and then goes to the mirror and, and mutilates her own face after looking at Adelaide's face with a knife. And I thought that that was, that had to have been a reference to Elizabeth Moss's character having plastic surgery, uh, it kind of mutilating, you know, kind of having work done on herself because she has a self-loathing associated with the beauty of this black woman that she can't kind of deal with psychologically. Uh, and, and that there's a sort of jealousy in the same way that the uh, the the white man has to have the fancy car. Right. Because he needs to kind of project superiority over the black man uh, and how he makes fun of his boat. Right. He has to, like, minimize and make fun of his boat for, like, not being that great. Right. Um, and even kind of like chases him into the boat uh, in a sort of weird sexualish scene where he kind of corners him in the dark and he kind of squirts out his his flare gun. And it's really kind of strange. Uh, there's there's I mean, you could read that in a Freudian way or not, but there's, there's definitely there definitely seemed to me to be this sort of envy aspect, which you could see as either a material envy 
or kind of racially coded envy or both. Uh, I guess that's what we're saying is that this is a movie that's rich with different levels of symbolism. You can read into it different ways if you want. I mean, I don't know what Mark, what did you think about all this stuff? I mean, oh, this, if we're addressing sort of the the racial component of this writ large, like Pete, everything you're talking about, like, is certainly a valid reading of the movie, right? And I think you know, there's many, a lot of commentary online how there's not one neat allegory for this movie, right? Um, and uh, it's called feature and a bug, right? It's not quite as elegant as Get Out, but it opens up to so much rich interpretation um, that it makes it kind of a a a, a, a more interesting and, and more complex intellectual exercise to interpret. And one, just one thing to add on to the, this, the racial reading of this is the fact that um, at the beginning of the movie, uh, the Lupita character goes into the like the sh- the shaman's hut or something like that, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like horrible Native American caricature there, and then uh, in the current day version of it they called merlin's uh something this that or the other right so they, they yeah, just very forest, yeah. they just like, papered over the horrible uh racial genocidal past of america with something that's whimsical and fantastical and uh, expect us all to move on with our lives so that actually uh serves a bunch of different readings the racial one and the class reading as well so um th- this is this is a big tent horror movie big tent allegory <laughs> We can do all. We can do all the above. <laughs> oh, so for me, um, so in that conversation that you were talking about, Pete Elizabeth Moss's character also mentions thinking about killing her husband every day or something of that nature. Um, <laughs> that was dark. so. That just comes out like she's talking about you know the color of her her eyes or something like something that's regular um and yeah like you're saying i didn't see it that way when um the whole regarding um i guess regarding adelaide's face and then cutting herself uh the doppelganger of elizabeth moss's character i have the name um but it's never spoken of um it's so random to me i saw it as Red is the person that's in charge, and perhaps she has some sort of direct charge not to harm Red's doppelganger. That's mm-hmm. what I took it as. But I, the this plastic surgery or self-loathing angle, I think, makes a lot more sense and is a bit more interesting. Yeah, it definitely seems like there. This is there's like aspects of this movie that reward we rewatching if you go back and watch it, knowing that the Adelaide that we think is Adelaide is really red. And right. how does that affect the events that have happened in the story? Like uh, like with the two kids, right? Where where it seems like the two boys, I when I yeah, I, I thought I sort of I had it, but I, I kind of backed away from it, was that there's a moment, maybe about a third of the way through the movie, where the sun vanishes for like ten minutes inside the house and ends up crawling out of from under the drain. And I was kind of wondering whether at that point the suns switch. Uh, not at the beach, but later on in the house where the boy kind of runs away for a little bit and then comes back. Um, and, and I and I and I'm kind of I feel like I'd have to rewatch the movie, but it seems like maybe that's not what happens. But the son, but the sons have a kind of knowledge of each other because the son is the only person who actually goes down into the uh, the tunnels and and sees that there's this sort of other society of other people and kind of understands the deal that his mom is kind of from the people beneath. Um, but it's interesting that the boy snapping seems to have been trying to get the boy with the sparks to set the car on fire, I guess. It was because there was this weird relationship with the matches and the sparks where one of the boys has a sort of fake fire and one of the boys has real fire. And then when the two boys are connected by the the, the line of gasoline, which is the most Shikamaru-esque 
fight scene in the movie, right? The most sort of Naruto inspired. Um, he's like he's like extended his shadow technique to attempt to set the car on fire by getting the boy to use his spark, right? Because he doesn't have any matches for some reason. But then the boy is able to use the technique back on him. And that led me to think, oh, is like, is the boy who's in the Wolfman mask, is it like a Lon Chaney Wolfman mask? Or is it like a Chewbacca mom mask? It's like one or the other or both. But I think it was the kid yeah. in the Wolfman mask is then able to use the power to force the kid with the match with the matches and the sort of crazy kid mask to back away into the fire. I guess the jumpsuit is really that somewhere he had to get in the jumpsuit. And I guess that would indicate that would kind of foil that theory that they've been swapped. No, no, go ahead, Jordan. What are you thinking? I mean, the, the thing that to me makes it impossible for them to have been swapped is that the, the tethered boy whose name is Pluto, uh, Right. Like because he's he's like a dog. He's Pluto um, is has old burn scars all over his face. So if if like the surface boy was kidnapped early in the movie, they would need to have him somehow get horribly burned and then spend months and months recuperating before he could pop out. I mean, I suppose you could say that that the the burn scars are actually makeup, which is what they actually are. But I, that, that's the way that that one sort of falls apart for me. Yeah. I do think, though, that there is something about, like, with the boy and the magic trick that makes sparks that he sort of can't get working, somewhere buried in this movie – there's kind of like the version of this movie that Steven Spielberg would have made where all of the surface people are like subtly broken in one way or another. And through confronting their shadow selves, they all fix the things that are wrong with them. So like the dad can't get his speedboat to work, but then while he's fighting his double, he finally figures out the right way to bang the motor to make it turn on and, you know, and tear his double apart. And the, the daughter gets to drive the car and the boy works out his magic trick. Right. So that's like, I think that having that stuff in there is really nice because it pulls you along and you're kind of like, Oh yeah, I know, I know how this is going to work. Then they're all going to load in the helicopter and fly away from Jurassic park. And then the mom is the one that's kind of the spoiler, right? Because it turns out that there is much more wrong with her than we initially thought. Right, right, right. So that that would also add a little bit of bleach to your Naruto, but a very, again, very anime-like plotline of exploring your dark self. That I mean, that 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 would be a fun movie to watch, I think, and it definitely seems buried in there somewhere. Um, well, because and then the other thing about the the sort of dark self is that. There's a you could read the tethered not as a sociological thing, although I do think that's the main thing that the movie is doing, and have it be more that they are they're sort of part of us psychologically that they are a component of ourselves, maybe our physical bodies, or maybe like maybe our sort of deeply suppressed subconscious or something like that. The scene for me that that brought this part home, and the one that I've been thinking about the most since I saw it just over and over again, is the flashback that we get. So there's a scene in the early carnival thing, uh, Adelaide's father, whose name is, I'm looking at IMDB here, Russell, is playing a carnival game where he like knocks over balls and he wins her a thriller t-shirt, which is a great piece of like cultural specificity. At the same time, we later learn uh, Red is down underneath in the tunnels and her father, whose name is Wayland, uh, you know, of, of Wayland Yutani fame, I guess, uh, hands her a t-shirt and he does it with this, like he contorts his face into a smile like you'd smile at your kid 
but clearly there's like there's no actual emotion there and he looks more angry and smiling and he's not even really like making eye contact with her he's just going through the motion and he hands her the shirt and as soon as she takes it he like completely disengages with her and walks off to do the next thing and the thing is that like the way that he's behaving is part of what's going on on the surface as well because Red's father, Adelaide's father, doesn't really want to be a dad right at that moment. He wants to like drink a beer and have fun at the carnival. This is why he ignores her and she's able to wander off into the House of Mirrors to begin with. And it's not like what he really wants is like he he has no engagement with his child and he just wants her to go away and doesn't want to be with her at all. But there is that part of him that maybe does feel that. And that seems to be then reflected more honestly in the doppelganger or something like that. Oh, okay. So it's also again. Yeah, I got to follow on to this is that um, in the um, in the surface world, the the carnies that you see at both at the beginning and uh, and and when you revisit them later on have this extremely disinterested, disengaged look on their face, which is more or less replicated exactly as you see it. In the underground, because um, those people, the carnies, just like the you know the the, the folks who are working behind the stands at the uh, in the games and things like that, they are an exploited underclass, right? So that makes sense that they are very closely aligned with what we see underground. So right. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I like I like this thread here. Yeah, one moment that stuck out to me as relate, and I want to talk about the carnival again in, in just a second. But um, one moment that stuck out to me is reinforcing this reading you're talking about a kind of the the relationship between the kind of internal and external in these people is when they're pulling up to the house and the daughter is complaining that there's no internet. They can't have any Wi-Fi. What's the Wi-Fi, right? And then I goes, why do you need the internet when you have the outer net? <laughs> right. And which you could read as like, why do you need to have come to terms with who you are as a person when you can experience the superficial exteriority of your life? <laughs> right. Like, uh, why do you have to, why do you have to confront your inner bored carny? Um, but, um, and I guess, I don't know what, here's, here's another thing from the carnival though, that just, that, uh, came to mind and I wanted to make sure we didn't miss. Did anyone else notice the t-shirts that were shared between the carny guy at the milk bottle game and the daughter of the white family? No. Was it? They were both, they were both wearing t-shirts for the punk band Black Flag, uh, which is known for its album Damaged, which is, uh, seen as kind of a t- sort of seminal uh, seminal uh, punk album. And, and I was curious, the idea of a black flag being associated with this movie, um, it could, it could again, another symbol that could resonate in a whole bunch of ways, right? There's the idea of it being a white person. It's two white people wearing black flag T-shirts, which is of itself kind of interesting, right? Both of those T-shirts are black and white, right? And then also there's the idea that, that black flag is a band that talks about like anarchy as opposed to surrender and kind of violent spirit, your sort of internalized violence, uh, and also the degree to which you yourself are damaged. If you want to check out the album cover of uh, Black Flag's album Damaged, it's a man looking in the mirror and punching himself in the face and shattering his mirror. So it seems like there might be some sort of uh, subtle nod towards Black Flag going on throughout. So if there's anybody who's a big Black Flag enthusiast, uh, it's, um, it would be interesting to hear. Mind you, there's also a very prominently featured uh, copy of Chud on VHS in this movie. <laughs> so. Yes, which is also on the nose because there are carnivorous humanoid underground dwellers in this yeah. movie. So, so sometimes it's just production designers having fun, I think. That's true. So maybe there was a production designer who deliberately put the Black Flag shirts on these people because they appreciated what Black Flag was, which would undermine the idea that this is an outdoor project and ran 
reinforce that it is in fact a collaboration of people with a variety of artistic messages uh, might be the way. I did uh, want to make sure that we talk at some point about how incredibly like amazingly good the acting is through all of this. Like as as we've described it, if you haven't seen the movie, you know this is some wild stuff to try to bring across, and then the cast just absolutely sells it. You, you don't doubt for a minute that it's happening when you're watching it. Yeah, definitely. And it's I mean, I was worried that Lupita Nyong'o would be underutilized in her role until Red showed up. Um, mm, it's right. like it's like there's something she she I I don't know. Her playing Red, I felt like I saw more of her as an actress than I've seen in most of the other stuff that I've seen her do. Um, but maybe that's just because I really uh, appreciate really bold, uh, really bold takes on characters that kind of stretch credulity and kind of dwell in the kind of psychological strangenesses. Uh, well, I find that kind of interesting. And then especially to have that like counterpoise with extremely naturalistic acting uh, right. going on, right? Having a conversation with yourself, doing doing the voice where she's like actually talking inward, like breathing in as she speaks, right? Uh, which is a tricky thing to do comprehensively. Um, and then just to sort of react to this with sort of method, this is what an actual human being in this circumstance would behave like. Uh, it's a It's a real tour de force. Is that is that the idea that all of the tethered speak inward? I don't think it's all of them. Okay. <laughs> I think it, I think Red was born in the outer nets and <laughs> knew how to speak and had that education and then she was put underground to my understanding um from the weird barking that we see the tethered do they do not know how to communicate in English. All right. What did you make of that? I don't know why they weren't. I I don't know. Um, It might be a conversation about how, you know, one group sees the other as not being to their level or worthy um, or devalues the humanity. Um, That's that's a way to to look at it for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. It, 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 It seems to somehow be connected to one of the trickier parts of the movie, which is the dance. Right. That that this idea that 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 uh, Adelaide, who is red, right, Adelaide from beneath the ground is able to realize herself through dance in a way that she isn't through speaking, which seems to have both kind of like real world resonances in the idea in sort of art. Right. And the idea of finding her. And this is a movie in which people's souls are are split in half or are shared among people that her sort of soul is actualized almost like it's like. Her soul is plunged underground. Everybody else's soul gets to live up top with them. But her soul gets plunged underground into this sort of internalized space or into this either into an internalized space of kind of shame and kind of uh, either material or historical uh, kind of degradation. And and her kind of like artistic soul kind of burgeons out as a sort of cage bird singing. Right. Or it's a case of kind of the, the dance being the kind of art of the work of the sort of oppressed, right? That the sort of that the oppressed kind of sing out with their art in ways that the kind of comfortable can't. Uh, and, and this sort of beauty of her dance, which gets put into the elite setting of the ballet, is is actually a product of, of uh, her struggle against her oppression, right? And her sort of inability to kind of uh, actualize her true self. Uh, but I don't know, right? It's like, is it one, is it the other? What does the dance have to do with being voiceless? And the struggle and the dance fight in particular. Does anybody maybe take some of the dance? Because I really was rolling that one around in my head for a while. 
Anybody dance? Does anybody here have any experience? Mark, you like you like air guitar at the very least. <laughs> I, I, you know, now that you mention it, like actually, I actually feel quite alienated from dance because I am a musician. Okay, uh, it's like I, I feel like I ought to be very good at it or understand it, and then I'm not. Um, and then get frustrated by it. So dance is like this is very much like kind of a foreign language to me when it comes to the arts. Um, so yeah, I'm still trying to turn that over in my head as well too, because like what you see on the surface world is like very elegant and very put together. And what's going on underground um, is uh, like a, a a weird simulacrum of it. It's like it's it's it goes back again to the control piece, right? Like who's right. controlling who? Um, it, it's not clear there, and she's kind of thrashing about um but it's it's still you know you see all the other doppelgangers uh look on in if nothing else with intense interest on it it's 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 haunting if nothing else yeah, so, yeah I'm, it, I'm still trying to turn it over has anybody seen suspiria because either the original one or the remake i think that's about a coven of witches who can use the power of dance to cast spells on the living uh or on like <laughs> random people I think, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm only familiar of it from like summary videos and, and film studies and stuff. Uh, but I'm, maybe there's maybe that's just sort of because it's like a Italian horror a classic, but I'm not much of a horror movie uh, viewer. So I have only a very vague canonical knowledge of it, um, of sort of evil dance magic. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, know. I've I've seen both versions of Suspiria in the original, which is a masterpiece, but very strange. The the dance school is just kind of there as a cover for the witches, although it's not clear that the witches have any evil plan beyond running a dance school. Like there's like there's these witches are like, oh, we've got to stop the witches. Stop them from doing what? From running a dance school? That's all that they're doing. But then in the in the recent remake, uh, they do sort of incorporate the dance a little bit more. And there is a scene where um, one person dances this extremely violent dance on stage, which then causes somebody that the witches are angry at to mimic those moves in like a crowded space full of metal lockers and they bludgeon themselves to death uh, as they're forced to sort of to engage in the same dance dance steps yeah. in a space that's not designed for it definitely like that that suspiria and this movie feel very much of a piece some of the costumes are even rather similar um yeah you know what just hit me like a thunderbolt though you know what just hit me like a thunderbolt you know you know what else has a dance situation of a sort of weird messed up occult dance mimicry scenario Yes! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> With Michael oh Jackson, boy. Michael Jackson, or ghoul Michael Jackson, right? Like, do they dance across from each other? Is that exactly what happens? I feel like uh, no, but I will say so. Basically, um, you know, you think that he is. There's like a there's a movie where he's a werewolf, right? That happens, and it's like you find out that he is this other thing, and then in the quote real world, you find that he's a zombie somehow and then there's this whole dance it's great it's lovely the girl runs inside the house she hides and then you know normal face michael jackson comes to save her and at the end he turns around and his eyes are different and there's the delightful laughter so it's kind of that whole thing of you know lupita nyongo's character adelaide at the end smiling when you know that she's the one that grew up underground the whole time wow. um kind of like letting you know that she was bad the entire time or quote unquote bad in, other, in any way not what you thought that she was bad and we knew it you know and, come oh, on dear. the oh, whole boy. world wants to answer oh, boy. 
<laughs> oh man, that uh, the idea that this whole thing is like a gloss on Michael Jackson, in addition to everything else that is doing, is just blowing my mind well, right now. This, I, I, uh, this, this could be my mind filling in all sorts of different gaps, but I believe it, I just uh, saw a YouTube video of Jordan Peele talking about addressing the Michael Jackson stuff in here, um, because there's also a connection with the glove. Apparently, glove on one oh, hand. They'll wear one glove. Uh, How did I miss yeah. this? Yeah. When I was um, watching the movie. Uh, but anyway, it's like the short version of what uh, Jordan Peele was saying is that Michael Jackson is all about duality, and this movie is all about duality. So there you go, right? I mean, like right, white black. Uh, you know, sort of you know, good versus evil. Um, it's it's all there for the taking. Yeah. Another, another. I wanted to. Oh, sorry. I don't want to jump in if somebody else wants to jump on this. This. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll say I'll say one quick thing, and then I'll, and I'll pass. I feel like I'm hosting, but I'm not being generous. I apologize. Um, another duality, a representative of duality, which is a moment I really loved, which is really, really early in the movie in the carnival scene where Adelaide is given a choice of what carnival activity she wants to do. And the choice is either to ride the Big Dipper or play whack-a-mole, right? Which seems to speak to so many of the different dualities that we're talking about because there's one that's sort of upwardly oriented, Right. The, the Big Dipper is the name of the roller coaster, but it's like the, the stars in the sky. Right. Versus the whack-a-mole, which has the violence in it. Right. And it's sort of dirty and in the dirt. But the part that struck me because I was looking to read into this was the Big Dipper is the proverbial drinking gourd in the traditional song about escaping. Right. The sort of the sort of mnemonic rhyme about escaping from slavery to follow the drinking gourd. Uh, right. Because if you follow the, the Big Dipper, and which uh, if you follow the Big Dipper, it, of course, Polaris is not in the Big Dipper, but. Um, and you can follow the sort of directions of the stars that are pointing. And, and then if you go in that direction, you'll m- gradually make your way in the general direction of freedom. And that um, in much the same way that Adelaide chooses to take the prize from the second row rather than going for the risk of the prize on the third row, she also declines to ride the Big Dipper and instead goes with her father to play whack-a-mole. She then sort of like wanders off into the beach and goes down, right? She's sort of downwardly oriented rather than upwardly oriented, uh, which could speak to her sort of unique connection with this other lower, darker, more brutal uh, side of of America and of psychology, of the psychosis of all these people uh, or the psyches of all these people, you know, psyche, psychosis, whatever. Um, It's just that there's this is an up movie and a down movie. Uh, And I guess it's also a black movie and a white movie. Um, you know, shaman, shaman now, uh, and I'm dancing on top of a car. And oh boy. <laughs> so... Okay, Peter, I'm going to cut you off. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> I, but my face is morphing back and forth between me and my doppelganger as I'm bopping around and singing this. Sorry. Oh, what did Lord. you? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to call out. So there are a couple things that we didn't mention. There's just so much to talk about. Um, but the very first thing that I wanted to research as I was watching this movie was the quote, um, Jeremiah eleven eleven is written on the the placard that's being held up, and that translates to um, therefore this is what the Lord says: I will bring on them a disaster that they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. And that's carved into the head of the doppelganger for the um, the person that's the carny that Adelaide walks past or Red actually walks past on her way to the House of Mirrors. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is this whole concept where we're talking about what is the movie trying to say about us um, asking Red what they are doing or what they're what they're about and the responses we're Americans um, and just the concept that even though you have all this horror unfolding onto this family, um, the daughter, I'm going to look up her name really quickly. 
she gets really into bludgeoning the others or the tethered Zora her name is um, to the point where she almost seems to be doing it gleefully and um, the son Jason is kind of off to the side watching this and you have the daughter kind of grunting and like sounding a little bit like the tethered and it's something that comes back um, before the movie reveals to you that Adelaide is from the underverse or whatever have you and she's doing that sort of grunting as well when she's bludgeoning or stabbing red yeah i thought it was interesting that the daughter liked to seemed to enjoy beating the tethered with objects of privilege like she grabs a golf club that that struck me right is like she has a golf club she hits them with a golf club and she hits them with a range rover or i guess an lr4 or something along those lines and adelaide Mm. has a has a fireplace poker Right. They don't have. And, and also, I mean, this is the most obvious of these is uh, is uh, jeans, aluminum, fancy aluminum, like RX 9000 baseball bat. Right. Like they all have kind of all of the untethered people have very kind of fancy uh, devices of violence that are kind of marks of their privileged life that they used to beat down the people who are less well off than they are and don't have uh, uh, the kind of hair care that they do. And thus are so disheveled. Um uh, yeah. This is the uh, this is the opposite of if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. It's like if all that you have is a five thousand dollar golf club, then that's what you're going to pound in nails with, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think or if that... all you have is privilege, you don't see where the underprivileged are and how they're affected by it. Yeah, yeah. There's that line like you can't use the master's tools to disassemble the master's house and someone calls into the show's like, hi, so I am a master. Can I use my tools to like smack on my servants and keep them down so that I can continue to be the master? <laughs> Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I love you, Maimonides. I'm leaving a small amount of my money in the in the uh, room with no door and I just want everyone to know that. <laughs> Maimonides joke. Yeah, the question. So I I was thinking about another line that I think is a sort of um, a holdover from the notional Steven Spielberg version of this, which is remember that uh, the first time that us gets flagged in the the script of the movie is when they look out into the driveway and they see the family. I think it's I think it's the Winston Duke character says it's us. No, it's that question. It's actually the boy. It's okay. And then who is it who at the end, when they first see the hands across America chain says it's them. Right. Did did anyone else see that? Oh, wow. Um, And what what this got me thinking of actually is um, another, another us, not in this movie, but in, uh, in widows, actually the Liam Neeson line was like, I couldn't save us. So I had to save me. Mm. Um, And, I kind of got thinking, and this is the question I want to ask you all, how would you save us? If you refuse to think of the tethered as some kind of alien threat who needs to be, you know, knocked over with your Range Rover, how could going forward we avoid a society where people are constantly brutalized? You know, taking the movie's crazy sci-fi conceit literally for a minute, what would what would have to change? So that you don't have people constantly being abused, so that every time some some person does plastic surgery to themselves, there's not somebody down in a tunnel like carving their face up with a with a with a dull knife or whatever, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that it, 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 to invert the movie, you'd have to make everything visible. I guess if if the movie is making the case that the violence is being enabled by things being kept secret. Then you would, ha- in order to kind of have there be less violence, you would have to have everything be out in the open, 
Um, all and of like, the enmities. And every time you did anything, you would need to first check in, right? To make sure, like, am I going to cause a harm by doing this? Right. Where's my doppelganger? Are they in a good place? Like, if I if I choose to dance at this moment, is there anyone around who is going to be observing them dancing in a way they might not like or whatever? Right. right. Uh, before I before I kiss this guy, where's my doppelganger? Is she okay with kissing the guy that she's going to kiss? And that seems like. So I think. Hmm. No, go on. Sorry to cut you off, but I, I think it's interesting that we're um, talking about ways that are essentially how how we um, assist or help the people that still remain kind of below um, as opposed to how do we empower those that are tethered so that they can be untethered they no longer have to be linked to the souls of the people that are above and then how can they move forward and have their own lives that they don't have to worry about whether or not so-and-so is kissing such and such or eating food because just because I'm eating doesn't mean they have to eat rabbit raw anymore. They can eat whatever they want, whenever they want and empowering them to do so. And of course that's what Red's plan does, right? Like it's a, a pretty stark and brutal way of doing it, but that is her plan is to kill the surface people so that the tethered can then finally be free. But yeah, I think that's actually, that's a really good point. And like my, my solutions are very, uh, very paternalistic in that sense. Cause I'm assuming that it's the surface people who are going to be the ones to figure out the way to, to make this work. Uh, and I'm not really giving any agency to the tethered in that scenario. Yeah. Do you just cook the rabbit? Is that what you do? First? <laughs> cook all the rabbits. <laughs> Universal yeah. basic income, Andrew Yang, 2020. <laughs> He will prevent the tethered uprising. Yes. If, if, just implicitly. Tr the answer is to implicitly trust in a politician who is going to fix all of this in a short period of time during which they hold office and they will yeah. heal all the wounds and make America perfect, which is exactly what we should trust our leaders to do. Right. Um, I mean, I guess that's the ultimate manifestation of the idea that we think of this as being a problem of a relation between certain people and other people um, as rather than like. Is it is it people and other people, people and themselves? There's just so many axes on which to do this sort of thing. There's, I guess, we can think about the sort of mechanical operation of like, well, you should just set up two different mirror image towns where everybody just goes through the same identical day, just backwards, right? Um, but also, do you teach them sign language if they can't talk? I guess might be another thing. Is it is the dance a big part of it? Like, you need to have some way to express yourself, or else you can't transcend at all. Um, I don't know. There is an interesting way in which, like, to go back to the, the reading of the tethered where it's more about mind-body duality and different facets of a single person, that dance is a way of speaking through the body, right? And when Red, who was actually a service person initially, has the final confrontation, she says to Adelaide, who in this reading is kind of like her body or something like that, if it wasn't for you, I never would have danced at all, right? Mm -hmm. And then in their fight, Red is still dancing and is very balletic and choreographed, whereas Adelaide is doing this like really messy, sloppy fight or flight, uh, what an actual person trying to kill somebody would probably actually do. So there's a sense in which Red is still doing the cerebral artistic thing and Adelaide is doing the, you know, the the human and extremists acting like an animal kind of thing, right? So there is the sense in which dance is this thing that depends on both the mind and the body and has to link both of them. 
Right. Well, to close it out, I will pose one question to everybody. On a scale of one to 10, uh, with one being not at all satisfied and 10 being supremely satisfied, how satisfied were you when the owl just got clocked? I, <laughs> I feel Pretty like sense. I watch. I don't even remember this. Like oh. what owl? Oh man! So I don't like horror movies, and so I was sitting there by myself in a nearly empty theater on a Thursday afternoon, uh, a Thursday evening rather after work. Um, and 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 in the original, in the beginning of the movie, when she's going down into the house of mirrors and it's spooky, I'm like practicing oh, yes. my ears. Okay. And then there's a jump scare <laughs> of an of a mechanical owl jumping out of the wall and go like whoo whoo right. And so okay, and that's, I remember that. Yeah, and that's the movie sort of saying, "Ha ha, this is a horror movie with jump scares. We're going to disarm you with this so that you don't take it seriously, so that we can actually scare you later." And then at the very end, uh, in the when they go back into the House of Mirrors, the owl comes out, and Lupita Nyong'o just freaking clocks it, <laughs> just like just wrecks it with a fireplace poker. And I, and I found that supremely satisfying. Maybe maybe I'm the only one. Oh, uh, I remember now. That was very fun. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, Pete, it's kind of like um, this is a a Superman or perhaps a Captain Marvel solution to a to a roots problem because it's like the, the the fact that the owl is still there in Merlin's cave when it was there in the the shaman's hut is sort of like these are the horrible traumas that are baked into the core of American society. You think you can paper them over, but it's the same owl and it will continue to jump out, and there's no escaping from this. And then Lupita's like, I can hit it with a bat. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, we joke about roots, but Kunta Kinte was also kidnapped from the beach and stripped of his voice and identity uh, during his rite of passage, right? So it's like not entirely unapt of a comparison. Um, also, OJ is in roots, and OJ has mentioned this movie, but I don't think that was the reason that OJ was mentioned in this movie. <laughs> um, and on that note, uh, also, by the way, when I think of a Captain Marvel solution to a roots problem, I just think of Blade. Uh, which was so satisfying because you got to watch uh, uh, a really positivistic dis- destruction of uh, of any sort of scariness that was going to be approaching the main character, which uh, is good if you're unsettled by horror movies. So uh, shall that be that? Uh, any last thoughts about us from any of us? Uh, please uh, speak now or forever hold your, your peace. I just I feel like I'll get my overthinker's license taken away if I don't say this. This is a movie where the major intertexts are, I think, like The Hills of Eyes and Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which is a balls out straight. Yeah, that does. It's so much. It's, it definitely seems balls out strange indeed. Definitely. Uh, anything else? Um, I know there's a list of movies that were given to the cast to watch in order to have like a similar like universe of horror movies and things to reference. And I kind of wish I got that list before I watched this movie because there's so much going on here and I definitely want to see it again. Do you have the list now? Not offhand, but I know um, there's, I mean, I found a list. I found an additional list that Jordan didn't actually give, but I know for a fact that um, Lupita was given a list of things to watch beforehand just to get that um so i can send that in that could be something to to think about that could be additional additional uh homework for everyone listening to the podcast (laughs) yeah this is a real overthinking at shangri-la of a movie because not only do we get to overthinking it 
but everybody else does too, right, Mark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and my last thing on this is actually about Get Out, which we never actually did an Overthinking It podcast on, but um, it, it's it's almost like redundant to say at this point. But Get Out is freaking brilliant. It's like still uh, like my favorite movie that I've seen over the last like I don't know ten years. Um, so Jordan Peele, whatever this guy's doing, right? Like his journey from like pretty damn good sketch comedy to this stuff. Uh, however he got from point A to point B, he, he, I, I don't care, but he did it, and it's amazing. So I'm really glad we're in the spot altogether and with the, him. Awesome. And the last thing I'll say is that if you really want to write a, your um, your American Studies thesis on this, uh, remark that they are whistling the eensy weensy spider throughout the movie and start writing about the folklore of Anansi and see if it relates to what's going on. Because <laughs> you can't do wrong, I'm sure. Uh, and that note, we'll bring this to a close. Thank you so much, Shion. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm so glad that this podcast gave me the occasion to watch a movie that I was scared to watch by myself. And I hope that you all enjoyed the movie as much as I did and all of you at home as well and if you like this uh please you know subscribe to our podcasts and join us and become a member and support the us to get bonus content bonus podcasts uh it's it's all for a pretty low price and we of course uh, love those who keep the lights on around here even if sometimes we like to watch a movie in the dark so uh until next time uh please visit us on the web anytime visit us as it were on the web at any time <laughs> <laughs> and overthinking it.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't. <laughs> so glad you didn't say Wow. What do you think, Sean? You're going to come back after this one? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been great if after Elizabeth Moss' family got killed, like the the replicants pulled out a little red Alexa cylinder and replaced their in-home smart speaker with one that you'd be like, you know, Ophelia, play Despacito, and it would just go. (laughs) Oh my gosh.